We recently had the pleasure to speak with Audrey Niffenegger about her graphic novel called The Night Bookmobile. We spent an hour talking to her about her career and her, um, her art. She's a writer. She's most famous for being a novelist and for writing the novel The Time Traveler's Wife. In this uh, discussion, tried to focus on her um, art, artwork and her process of making. Let's all uh, welcome Audrey Niffenegger to the Kesh Gallery. To get started, let me say that after the Q&A, uh, there are books out front for purchase. Audrey is happy to sign copies uh, for you if you want to buy. Please see me to make the purchase. I can take a credit card purchase on my computer, Venmo on my phone, or cash, cash or check. Uh, but cash, I don't have uh, change, so any extra cash would be a donation to St. No. Ambrose. <laughs> But with that said, uh, let's let's talk about the work in the gallery. Um, Audrey, I um, first of all just want to ask you about the process of how this started as a commission piece for a newspaper. Right. So I was invited by The Guardian to do a comic. And The Guardian uh, has a long tradition of having really terrific comics by People, uh, most notably Posey Simmons, I don't know if that's a familiar name here, but in the UK she is revered. And The Guardian is her home paper, and the slot that they were offering me was Posey's slot because she was going to go off and work on a book. Um, and I was like, sure, yay, oh my god. Um, the slot was in their review section, which runs on Saturdays, and it's all the book reviews. It's a very literary part of the paper and very arty. So I immediately started thinking that whatever I was going to do should have some kind of bookish theme to it. And I had already written a short story, uh, The Night Bookmobile, and I thought, okay, that would be a good bet. I could adapt this into a comic. Um, it would have the advantage of me being able to show it to them before I embarked and also having a very finite um, end because obviously someday Posey was going to want to come back. Um, so I, I sat down and storyboarded it. I sent them the story. They said, oh, yay, couldn't it be longer? And I was like, well, no, not really. So, um, so from, from the get-go, I knew that it was going to be, I think it was 32 weeks. And... Uh, Incredible. It was it was lovely though because you know working for a a newspaper they offered me two different possible shapes. It could either be the top half of the page or it could run very long and narrow um, and go from the top to the bottom and be half a page this way. So after giving it some thought, um, because Winnebago's are basically horizontal and the bookmobile in question is a is a Winnebago. I thought, all right, let's have the horizontal uh, yeah. shape. Yeah. So that, that was kind of the starting point, was uh, an invitation to do just about anything, and then Weekly rapidly. for 32 weeks. That's, I, I didn't realize that. That's, that's amazing. And so were you, uh, was that a rolling deadline, or did you really need to give them the whole thing up front and they published it? Uh, so I managed to get, I think it was five weeks ahead before they started. They didn't give me very much notice with this. Mm -hmm. So um, also, I hadn't done comics since I was in high school. Right. 
And even though I've been thinking about comics and looking at comics and teaching comics for a long, long time, I hadn't done one in a while. And mm-hmm. so I just thought, all right, I will, I will just dive in. Mm-hmm. How hard can it be? <laughs> uh, it turns out that, yeah, it's a lot easier to, to think about somebody else's comic than to, <laughs> to deal with your own in a kind of Practice seat of your what pants you preach. kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was also this oddball thing that I was doing where I I wanted to do the some of the type um, and the panels I wanted to do it digitally and mm-hmm. I'm not a great genius of, of digital mm-hmm. so I did some experimenting did some storyboarding and some layouts and so the the way that um, the art that you see on the wall was made it's very weird. This is weird. This is not how real comics people proceed. And I knew that. But I just was kind of doing it my way because what else could I do? Yeah. Um, I'm not that Photoshop proficient. Mm-hmm. And so what I was doing was making the layouts um, in Photoshop and putting the type in. That's what I was going to ask you about. Printing yeah. it out. And then doing all the drawing and coloring and gouache. So these these are them. These are the originals. There are no digital things that look like this, except after the fact. I photographed everything, and mm-hmm. now I have it in the computer. But it's very backwards. Yeah. Um, my husband is a real comics person and has learned to do it properly, mm-hmm. and went from being somebody who did everything, um, you know, analog drawing. Mm-hmm. To now being somebody who completely works digitally, and uh, you know, he he finds this all very amusing. <laughs> so. Well, um, you know, there's a directness of of technique. I hesitate to call it awkwardness, but a directness of technique to these that's really affecting in um, in relationship to the sophistication of the story, to the surreal qualities of the story and ultimately to the poignancy of the story that I, I found. I, I almost started crying when I read, the, read the book at the end, that, you know, realizing where it was going and that it went there. Um, it's, a, it's a really powerful thing for a comic and to run it in the newspaper. What, what, was, what was some of the feedback when it ran in the newspaper? Oh, it's like sending art into a black hole. <laughs> um, I got no feedback. Nothing at all. It just was out there. <laughs> this ran in uh, the autumn of... Um, 2008 into the beginning of 2009 and uh, I was in Chicago and I was making, making, making I was putting things in FedEx envelopes and sending them to the Guardian where they did good scans Mm. because I didn't at that time have adequate scanning machinery myself Mm. so you know, sending the originals yeah, every few weeks the art, god knows I mean that could have been really wrong (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but anyway, the the funny thing is that eventually they would bundle up a bunch of, you know, the sections that it ran in and send it back to me. Mm-hmm. And I was I was working in really heightened color because I knew that on newsprint mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. going to die yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I was really kind of shocked when I got it back and saw what the color was looking like. Very, very uh, blown out in certain ways. The oh, damits were all weird. horribly wrong, yeah. but... Anyway, but they were also publishing it online, and online it was weird because the color was accurate, but everything was really tiny, and you couldn't really read it. 
uh, you could like do a little mouse over thing and things would blow up at you. They've fixed their site since then, but their site was really wonky. And I was just like, okay, this is horrifying in two totally different ways. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. And then the framing element, which makes perfect sense for a weekly run. Although I do want to ask about the chapter one. Was that... What's the chapter one now? Did it oh, right. yeah. end up not being a chapter one after the fact, or was that always sort of a... No, it really is chapter one. It's of uh, a book that's getting written so incredibly slowly that it's sort of like watching paint dry or <laughs> glaciers melt or something. Sure. Um, yeah, there's two other uh, stories in hmm. this suite of stories. Eventually it'll be called The Library, but... Um, the second one's called Moths the New World, and it was published in The Guardian a year or two later. Mm. It wasn't done as a comic. The Guardian decided, The Guardian does wacky things. I mean, mm. just brilliant things, things that I don't see much happening like this in American newspapers. But uh, for, for one weekend supplement, they decided that they wanted to include a little paperback book with brand new stories by me and Margaret Atwood and a pile of other people. Mm about any old thing. You could write about whatever you wanted. And so wow. I did another story that's not the same characters, but it's set in the same world, and it's a different um, batch of librarians. And uh, I suppose we should talk a little bit about what's going on here, because we're just kind of sitting in a room with a bunch of things that people can't read, because you're all sitting in chairs. <laughs> sure. Um, so the basic story of the Night Bookmobile it has to do with this young woman named uh, Alexandra, who discovers, quite by accident, that she has her very own personal bookmobile. And it's only possible to find this bookmobile um, at night. Uh, the hours are dusk to dawn. Uh, she has her very own librarian who tools around in this thing that is in disguise as a Winnebago. But if you go in, what's in there is every book she's ever read. And if you found your bookmobile, it would have everything you've ever read from you know actual books to serial packages to, you know, just, you know, the random advertisements you read when you're staring into space, and, you know, it's, it's like all the reading matter. And so Alexandra kind of falls in love with this thing and just is amazed and can't stop talking about it. Nobody believes her, of course, because why would you? And she gradually becomes a bit socially isolated because she's so obsessed with the thing, and she can't find it again. And so she keeps going out after dark looking around for this thing, and it's nowhere to be seen. And when she does eventually find it, she's, she's lost her boyfriend, and she's gone to library school, and she's, she's changed her life around completely based on this one encounter with this thing, and she's very relieved when she finds it again. And uh, volunteers to... to join the library, you know, she wants to, she wants to join up, and is very gently told that uh, she can't. Mm -hmm. um, and I can, I probably shouldn't get into spoilers, I'd probably let you read this thing for yourselves, <laughs> but the, the basic underlying rules of this particular world are um, living people are considered readers, everybody's got their own bookmobile, there's a great big central library from whence all bookmobiles emanate. Um, there's librarians. They're not living people. There are books. Each book has a soul. So the central library, the big library, all the real books are there. 
So those books can look like people, they can get up and walk around, they can have conversations with you, mm-hmm. and then they can get back up on the shelf and be asleep for however long they want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so readers, librarians, books, and authors. Um, the authors, they get up every day, they go to their jobs writing things. Um, unfortunately, the authors in the library are dead, and nothing that they're writing can be read by living people. So the authors get very frustrated and are constantly trying to escape. So that's, that's pretty much this world. And okay. so the stories that will eventually be in this book kind of are all generated by the rules that I just laid out to you. So we only get a glimpse of that larger world. Right. So in, in, this, in this particular story, you're just encou- encountering uh, one reader and one librarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a third story that features Alexandra and Robert, um, Robert Openshaw again. But uh, that one, I read that out loud for a national public radio thing, and I don't think it's accessible anymore. But mm. someday we'll, we'll make oh, it all it. one book and people will be able to read it. Yeah. My Part of my problem is I always have these huge projects that take years to do. And people send me a lot of emails saying, hey, that thing that you mentioned, where is it? <laughs> so, you know, give me another, like, I don't know, eight or nine years, and I will have this whole thing laid out for you. <laughs> well, we look forward to it, for sure. Nah, I've been forgotten about that. <laughs> um, well, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about was um, your crossover between writing and art. We, we chatted a little bit about it earlier, but... Um, you know, as a painter, words are difficult for me, right? And it seems like you cross over pretty handily. And there's, you know, across that whole spectrum, you seem to dance all the way across it. From oil paintings um, that you could consider narrative in, yeah. in scope, but then over to the, to the novel. So I'm very curious about how all that, all that happened. And, and not to get into, like semiotics or anything, but just the notion of how you visualize something initially. Do you visualize it as a word and find an image for it, or do you flow back and forth between images and words? I'm curious about how it works for you creatively. Uh, it certainly goes both ways. Um, yeah. In this case, I had, I had an idea about a bookmobile that would just be around at night, and then I realized that maybe it only existed at night, and then I thought, why would that be? But I was, I was talking earlier to, uh, to a bunch of students, and I was talking about the fact that, uh, for me, the idea is almost the least of it. Um, the process of growing the idea is what's really interesting, and I mostly do that by asking questions. So if it's a painting or, or something that's just going to be a single image, a lot of the time I can, I can just see that thing and I often will set out trying to realize that, and the process of making it will inevitably change it. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe if I was more perfect, I would just go for the thing and there it would be, but mm-hmm. I actually do think that would be less interesting. Sure, of course. But, uh, you know, a lot of my stuff starts off with a phrase or a title or a sentence. I think that may, may have been what inspired me. I, I think I read or heard somewhere that you, the time traveler's wife, started with that phrase, right? Yeah. Like that was a phrase that had 
seem to carry some kind of weight for you and then you built everything around that phrase? Well, the, the thing about that phrase is that it immediately yielded a bunch of questions. Mm -hmm. Like, you're sitting there thinking, well, who is this woman and would it be annoying to be married to a time traveler? Yes, it would. <laughs> and who are these people? And why would she marry this guy? <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Well, and, and then... Um, in preparing for your visit, I started reading The Time Traveler's Wife, and uh, so close to the end, I didn't quite finish it in time, but uh, the the notion of this, the arc of the story is so spiraling inward and outward uh, that it, it seemed very visual to me as a painter. I kept thinking, I mean, not only because you are constantly referencing art subtly throughout the story, but, but just the structure seemed very visual. So it, it really got me to, to wondering how, how, how it is that your mind works and traverses words and images and, and how, like for me, it, it became a very visual, like um, interlocking diamond pattern, the way that the, the time traveler moves back and forth through the future and how, how everything is wrapping in on itself, you know. Yeah, I mean, toward the end of working on it, I got out a big piece of craft paper and started <laughs> drawing it. But a lot of people were enjoying imagining me cocooned in all these index cards and wall charts. And yeah, I did. No, yeah. it was a, I just had a, you know, this is, I finished that book in 2002. Mm -hmm. So I had a Word document and just a little chronology. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So mostly, mostly still in the realm of the written. Yeah. Kind of, yeah, but... Because I had done a bunch of books where I was making all these etchings, and each etching had a phrase or a sentence with it, those books, I could lay the whole thing out in front of me and sort of stand there and survey it visually, like you're talking about. And I think, you know, and, and pick one thing up and move it over here. So I think that kind of trained me to think of the events of the story as a bit modular and, and capable of being moved into different patterns and mm -hmm. it certainly makes structure more interesting when you can visualize it like that. Yeah. So to direct this towards our student experience, the uh, your early years were more about reading and writing or more about drawing or both? Always always both art and, and words? Always both, yeah. When I was a tiny child I thought I would grow up and be a book illustrator. Okay. And uh, that seemed like just the best possible gig. Yeah. And when I was in, I started making books when I was really tiny. I would just fold up pieces of paper and do little poems and illustrate them. And that was uh, that was satisfying. And then in high school, I started trying to bind things, and of course, did it badly and with bad materials. So all those books are now like these crunchy rubber cement potato chippy <laughs> things are horrible. Um, and then when I got to um, School of the Art Institute of Chicago, there were actual bookbinding classes and, you know, I learned letterpress and I had been doing um, printmaking all along. I started printmaking when I was 14. So I was just lucky to stumble across these things yeah. that all fed into each other. But the thing that I was always most interested in was storytelling and narrative, and I wanted something to be happening, and mm -hmm. briefly thought about film, but I could not afford film. 
like like that just was like X'd off by my parents who were like, what? It costs what? And and so yeah, that just yeah. could be a very different direction for you now. Huh? Oh no, now I just pick up my phone and go around and make little stories. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, if I could, you know, st- if I was starting over, I'm sure I would. Yeah. Do that too, but yeah. but yeah, book illustration, and then of course, when you go to an art school, people can be very snobby about certain kinds of making illustration maybe right and everybody was like you you want to be an illustrator well illustration is not very cool right (laughs) i was like i don't know everybody i think is amazing as an illustrator um and maybe i if i if i hadn't been a printmaker i might have been more strongly headed toward commercial art or graphic art or Mm -hmm. something like that so the printmaking was sort of the easiest, the path of least resistance in an art school to pursue further. No, no I mean, you know, painting would have been, but... I see. Yeah, just, you know, I was, I was prepared to be very fierce and defend my territory, mm-hmm. but the school I was at didn't really even have a department for being an illustrator. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't just go hang with the other illustrators. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a weird thing that they were not into yeah yeah um well you folks want to get some chairs and sit down please nobody wants to sit in the front row (laughs) yeah there's chairs up here too absolutely um you know we in this department hear daily literally daily that the art the art the field of art is not really the most uh I mean, it's like some things never change. It's not, it's not the path you want to take if you want to be practical, right? You can't get a job. But I, I just, I'm wondering if you might suggest an alternative narrative to that here today, or what your thoughts are on, we talked about art education and some of the challenges for sure, but someone who's interested in art being told that they should be interested in something else. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, well... I mean, my, my parents were an interesting pair. My dad was a civil engineer, and so, you know, very logical, very practical dude. Uh, my mother was and is a um, textile artist. She makes quilts and does surface design and stuff like that. And her degree was in English with an art minor. So I was always, it seemed perfectly normal to me that you would make stuff. Mm-hmm. And so nobody put up any resistance whatsoever to me going to art school. Mm. Um, but when I was close to graduating, my dad said, okay, so how are you going to make a living? Mm-hmm. And the first time he asked me that, I'm like, mm-hmm. You know, because like, <laughs> something will happen, right? Yeah. And uh, then we got a little closer to graduation. He's like, no, seriously, what are you going to do? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll teach. You know, at the time, I had never taught in my life. There was no reason to suspect I would be any good at it. <laughs> and uh, then I, he went away for a while, and then he came back again, and he's like, okay, but uh, really, what are you going to do? And I'm like, look, Dad, the day after I graduate, I'm just going to kill myself. 
And that, boy, that shut him up, boy. Do not ask again. And I do not recommend this strategy. It will not make your parents happy. But, you know, I just kind of needed him to stop that, you know, um, because I didn't know. I was 22. Yeah. And so I think that more reasonable people who are not like human wolverines, which I was at the time, um, I mean, like, I'm 55, you know, I'm, I'm a lady who has had like real jobs and been a grown up and all that for decades. But when I was 22, I was a punk and I was like not really that much fun for my parents to deal with. Uh, just to put that comment in context. And, um, yeah, I just, you know, it was 1985, and I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to do whatever. I'll, I was, at the time I was a picture framer, so I was like, yeah, I'll just be a picture framer mm-hmm. forever, if necessary. Right. And um, I think in 1985 it was easier to support yourself with that kind of gig. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, I, I started, I did start teaching um, community classes. I was, I with was. With an undergrad degree, or with the. With, with the undergrad degree, with yeah. The undergrad degree. Um, yeah, I started teaching when I was 23. Okay. Because I got lucky and somebody saw that I knew what I was talking about mm-hmm. in an etching studio mm-hmm. and let me experiment on these poor people. <laughs> I learned to teach in this community setting, and mm-hmm. all my students were way older than me. And they had all been etching for way longer than I had. And they very kindly let me be, you know, the teacher. Um, and it, it took a few, I'd say it took about two years before I was really, you know, yeah. doing anything that was worth anybody else's tuition money. But, um, yeah, you know, just the, the difference between now and then, I think, is that there was just a lot more leeway. Yeah. Um, there were ways to monetize Mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, these days the internet has decided that we all work for free forever. Right. And uh, it's hard to snatch things back from the internet and make it some kind of paying gig. Um, I don't necessarily have amazing answers for that because I have watched all kinds of piracy and copyright violations and all sorts of other things just myself and I've seen this happen to friends, so, you know, yeah. I have... Yeah, the visual culture and the internet are, are troubling that way. But I, I, I feel like I've been taught by my students the last couple of years, you know, talking about, like, Instagram or mm-hmm. online sales. I feel, like, I feel like if you're creative and you're driven the way that you were driven as a Wolverine, I think they're going to find it. And I, I'm just really tired of... Um, hearing from other departments on, on campus at this school or from parents of students that right. I met generation after generation saying this is not viable. I, I, just, I just don't think that's true. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you dig into the, the real story of the making of a lot of the things that we use every day, mm-hmm. that you start to find out how the arts are really valuable. I mean, one of the most commonly known stories has to do with Steve Jobs taking a calligraphy class absolutely, and studying typography. And then when the Mac was being developed, he actually commissioned typefaces that were going to work on this new machine. Mm-hmm. And 
One of the reasons, of course, that Apple is so beloved by everybody in the creative professions is that they turned their faces toward good design and they knew that good design would make better machines and that we would all have a totally different relationship to these machines if top-notch designers and artists were involved in the thinking and the making of them. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's just one story, but there's, there's so many ways in which every object that you encounter every day of your life is somebody's design thing. And, you know, just the fact that we're sitting in this white room mm-hmm. instead of some kind of bow arts thing that's dark green with, you know, velvet on the walls. I mean, you know, that's modernism. We're still sitting here in a room that modernism made. And, you know, chairs we're sitting on, you know, I mean, every... There's so many artists that we don't even know about. That's one thing I love about the internet is constantly discovering, you know, somebody who designed some crazy thing that I'm not even aware of, and all of a sudden here it is. But, I mean, when you're a student, ideally you would get exposed to so many things. I mean, the whole point of the university is supposed to be that you go into a place unsure of what you need, and then are exposed to this, all of it. And my worry as colleges become more focused is that that serendipity is not there for the students. So that that person who can connect you up with your life's work by chance... You never meet them. Maybe not, you know? I mean, I I have a friend who teaches... uh, figure drawing to medical students. Medical students do not actually have to be able to draw. You know, who cares if your doctor can draw? The reason that medical humanities is becoming a big thing is that, for one thing, doctors are burning out very young because, you know, just too much, too much. But also, it's an attempt to connect the doctors to the whole person and not just see everybody as a collection of ailments or body parts. And figure drawing, apparently, will do this for you, you know? I mean, looking, drawing, it's connecting your hand and your brain and your eye, which I keep harping on. It's a whole different way of experiencing another human being. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I... I'm worried about education because it's become so expensive and... It's also being impoverished. Like, it's almost like the more it gets expensive, the more, the less it offers in the way of variety and chance encounters. Right, right. So, I don't know. The ongoing uh, development of bureaucracies and tracking and and, uh, particular requirements for certifications and, yeah. The yeah. more specialized everybody becomes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if I was going to start a school, I would um, make it as interdisciplinary as possible. I would not have grades. I would keep the tuition as low as possible. And I would invite a certain amount of chaos. Sure. And a lot of people would probably like be like, you know, well, you know, this is not the way to do things. But <laughs> it, it, would be, it would be an antidote to the sanitizing yeah. and, and corporatizing of everything. Right, 
Right. And also because my own best experiences always come in these kind of kind of halfway organized experiences. You know, like it's like you, you go to some class and the best part of the class is having coffee with everybody later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. sometimes, not always, but oh, yeah. the, the kind of uh, disorganized experiences that result from the organized experience are often just as nutritious. Many of my richest memories of my college professors have been occurred outside the classroom, maybe in a bar, or a restaurant, or a, an event, yeah. just outside. And they weren't structured class. I mean, a lot happened in structured classes for sure, but some of the most memorable ones were in. And I, phew, man, it's very hard. It's very hard to find those moments now, as it, seeing it from the other end as a teacher. So. Oh well, more chaos. More chaos <laughs> is needed. I would also be remiss if I didn't uh, thank you for bringing up the Steve Jobs narrative. That's one that we're really proud of here, too, because his professor there at Reed College learned calligraphy from our professor, ah, Father Kadich, here of course. At, uh, at St. Ambrose, so we love that story, too. <laughs> we, take, we take full responsibility for Apple and the Internet and everything else here at St. Yeah. Ambrose. So. Oh, well, yeah, maybe, maybe someday they'll... <laughs> I'll return the favor. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I would love to. I'm sure there are a lot of people that have questions for Audrey, so I'm more than willing to give up my voice to let others ask questions. So go for it. Um, so you mentioned earlier that uh, your process, you depends on what I'm trying to do because of course sometimes the questions are things like should this be a comic or should it be a novel or should it be a painting um, a couple of years ago I collaborated with a choreographer so I knew before I even started the book that the book was going to be a ballet and my collaborator Wayne McGregor kept saying don't worry about the ballet I'll take care of the ballet just make a story don't worry about whether I can stage it or not. Um, but yeah, there's there's always a uniqueness to each uh, thing in that sometimes there's an assignment or a commission of some sort. I always find it helpful to have some sort of limitations because it, it gives you some starting point, you know, like, oh, it's going to be this size or you have two colors or whatever it is and then from there but the kinds of questions if it's a story a lot of the time what I'm asking is who are these people and why do they do this and what's their relationship with each other and why do they care and you know what are they going to do and so the questions go from really broad and super basic to incredibly detailed as the thing fills out and becomes more and more of a rich world. Thanks. Did any of your life experiences inspire uh, your comic? Uh, golly. Not 
in terms of the story itself, but the way that I made this was I got friends of mine to be the characters, and we went out and did photo shoots. Mm. So um, really the characters look like um, this is uh, my friend Bill Frederick, and Alexandra is based on uh, April Sheridan. And uh, so I got people to actually pose. And we did things like, uh, at one point, I called up the Chicago Public Library and asked if we could come do a photo shoot on their bookmobile, uh, which was, they have a giant parking garage. And so <laughs> they let us just spend the day photographing on their bookmobile. So uh, it wasn't directly based on my own life experience, other than you know knowing about libraries and librarians and bookmobiles. but. I got to have some cool experiences because of the nature of the project. Um, and it got me thinking that it's important to choose your projects according to what sort of things you'd like to experience. Mm -hmm. So a no one of the novels I've written is set at Highgate Cemetery in London, and it enabled me to go over there and be a volunteer and give tours and just hang out a lot. And uh, you know, it was, like, it was like a sort of golden ticket to Highgate Cemetery. <laughs> Um, so a lot of the time, if you if you shape your project well, you can use it to go do things that you would love to do. Thank you. So it's sort of backwards in a way. That's a great question. Thank you. It, it reminded me that I did want to ask a little bit about some of the themes, um, which there does seem to be a, a theme of loss that runs through some of your stories and librarians or in books uh, and obviously artists, but. Um, Again, there was a moment at the time traveler's wife where I started I started to cry from the the sense of the mel the, the melancholy the loss that occurs that you know I was really affected by it and it seems like that's really um, rich ground for you to explore over and over. Yeah, um, I I don't know how many people have this when they're young, but even when I was a child, I had this sense of time passing irrevocably. Uh, I mean, I remember being, oh, I don't know, probably seven or eight and having that feeling of, oh, you know, now I'm seven and I used to be five and what's going on here? I'll know? never be five again. Never be five. Um, not that I wanted to be five again, but just like <laughs> the realization that you weren't going to get it back. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't going to go both ways. Yeah. And uh, there's just something both pleasurable in knowing that and, and looking back and also pleasurable just sort of feeling yourself really in the moment, mm -hmm. paying attention to the moment, mm -hmm. uh, and also profoundly um, freaky and unsettling in knowing that you are <coughs> sort of on a one-way trip mm -hmm. through your life. Mm -hmm. um, but. Time travel in particular gives the opportunity to pursue themes of loss. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there's kind of two schools of thought when you're writing time travel stories. One is what I think of as, you know, kind of the do-over school, you know, the, the kind of butterfly effect. Mm -hmm. and, Radical Back to the changes. Future, you know, yeah. there's a lot, lot, lot of wonderful stories written where you can change things. So you can go back, you can change something, and it will have either the desired effect or 
very undesirable. <laughs> oh my God, we've we've wiped out New York City. Radical kind of effect. effect yeah. yeah, but to me, those kinds of things are more comic mm-hmm. because consequences are undoable. Mm-hmm. You can you can have redos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if nothing can be changed, mm-hmm. if you go back and it's just going to be the same, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's inevitably a tragic thing. Mm-hmm. To me, more interesting to think about. Yes, but, the characters gain knowledge of things that are inevitable, and there's a yeah. sense of melancholy that can come from that, or or beauty, beautiful knowledge that's sad knowledge, you know. So. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, um, I'm close to finishing a sequel to The Time Traveler's Wife, and it's an interesting thing to do because everything has to fit with the previous book and not not try to undo anything that happened, not step on the timelines, mm-hmm. and so <clears throat> it, it kind of has as its core some of that melancholy of the first book, mm-hmm. but it's the story of Henry and Claire's daughter, Alma, mm-hmm. um, and so it's inevitably got a different feeling to it, mm-hmm. but um, it's also, it's, people were talking about you know life experiences influencing the art. Um, the last few years have just been extraordinarily difficult to ignore in the political realm and kind of the larger um, global warming climate change kind of realm. And so it's very difficult when you're writing about time travel yeah. and some of your characters are coming from the future, right. it is basically impossible not to deal with these themes. And right. the more I think about this stuff, the sadder I feel. Yeah. So I'm hoping that maybe I'll publish this book and a lot of people will feel really sad about climate change and maybe they'll do something about it. You know, maybe there's like some 13-year-old girl out there who will read this book and like be president and change everything. I don't know. It's, it's sort of, you know, when you write fiction, you, you don't know what effect any of your work has on people. I mean, there's a lot of dead artists who have really affected me very profoundly. For sure. So you're just kind of putting everything in a boat and hoping that at some point you do some kind of good for somebody. Absolutely. absolutely. But, you know, it's, it's hard not to be just overtly political yeah. these days. Yeah. Um, well, along those lines, there do seem to be themes that are um, characters that become obsessed or, or, or carried away by... Uh, Maybe the loss, or just you know something that's occurring. The, the time traveler becomes obsessive at times. The the character in the night book mobile becomes obsessed obsessed and to the the loss of the relationship, or maybe the, the loss was happening anyway. But is there is there something along uh, the lines of obsession that's also interesting to you, or Obsessi- being carried away? Yeah, obsession is interesting. Um, in my second novel, Her Fearful Symmetry, one of the characters has obsessive compulsive disorder okay. in a very bad life impacting way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I actually knew, I dated somebody who had it. And mm-hmm. I, I remember even while I was dating him, I was like feeling bad because I knew I was going to base a character on him. <laughs> um, I could not stop myself. Uh, but he was he was a lovely, lovely, smart person who was incredibly articulate at explaining what this experience was like for him. So I was trying to 
you know, mm-hmm. make sure that this portrayal was very empathetic. But I think that's that's the most extreme mm-hmm. take that I've gotten into about obsessive anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, that one's a love story too, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, he's kind of the romantic hero of the book and everybody else is kind of death obsessed and, mm-hmm. you know, doing things that are really not good for their mental health, but he's actually getting better <laughs> as things go along. <laughs> so the, the the difference between passion or or enthusiasm, passion, and obsession, that kind of range. Yeah, I mean, something that interests me always is is the either the very restrained person who somehow gets into a situation where they develop an obsession for something, either it's falling in love or, mm-hmm. you know, like Alexandra with her bookmobile, mm-hmm. um, versus the very uninhibited person who, you know, is able to kind of just let things roll. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just interesting to me how each individual person, I think if you don't experience things intensely, it's kind of difficult to really feel that you're fully experiencing your own life. Mm -hmm. And yet if you're experiencing stuff too intensely, it's just kind of hard to live your life. And I think a lot of people are trying to find a balance there, and I'm very interested in that balancing act. Yeah, certainly been my struggle. Sorry, I took took it back over again. Who else has questions? Um, Taking off on that word balance, here you've got the finished art, some record of the struggle that went through it, but you know there's confidence in the, so many decisions that are buried in these very accomplished works. Um, I'm wondering how far along in the process from storyboarding to choosing a horizontal rectangle to thinking about the ink sinking into newsprint and all that stuff, where you resolved your cast not only of characters but of graphic choices like the night bookmobile and this really romantic combination of fonts, very simple vulnerable line, um, the palette, you know, the amount of detail or lack of detail you chose and how uh, and then there's the, the font within the text. And, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of graphic novels that somehow ruin themselves by not working those all out. You know, it's like, God, if the hand lettering only different. Oh, and then you've got the hand lettering. Yeah. How, did, uh, how far along did you get before you said, I've got the, I've got the recipe. You know, it's going to be this font. And, yeah. Um, like I said, there wasn't much time between being commissioned and having to get rolling. So if you look at like the big one and then that next one, you'll see that things look a bit different. And then between that one and that third one, I basically hit it. Um, the, the character of Alexa looks a little bit more simplified at the beginning, and then I decided to just 
go for a slightly higher level of portraiture. But uh, yeah, I kind of I kind of had to get on it. Um, when we came to do the book with Abrams, they did not like the way I'd done the type. They they just hated that, and they were like, "Okay, we'll publish this, but we're not going to do it that way. We're going to do this other thing." And I don't know. This is going to be hard to show, but they they did something that was just a great deal more conventional, which is to say they they put the type in little beige boxes. And I was like, really? Really? You think that's better? No? No? So we, we had this big old arm wrestling match over it, and of course they won. Cause, <laughs> but the interesting thing about that is that a, a couple of years later, uh, when I met my husband, um, my husband's Eddie Campbell. He's a graphic novelist who's done a lot, lot, lot of work. His best-known thing is From Hell with Alan Moore. Anyway, he took a look at the book and kind of molded over, and he said, what happened to your type? And I said, oh? <laughs> and he said, this just looks odd. And I told him what I just told you, and he's like, ha, I knew it. Because he could see that it wasn't native to the design. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think anybody who really has a feeling for composition and, and stuff would, would look at the book and feel like, huh, you know, really? Um, I mean, this is a weird solution, but it's my solution, and you know, it's it's drawn into the image. The images are built around it. So, uh, you know, yeah, it's not the most graphically, digitally sophisticated thing, but you know, in 2008, I was basically, you know, kind of a, you know, <laughs> I could barely barely manage Photoshop at all. <laughs> so. I hope so, you know. I mean, I hope that the problem is if you wait until you actually know what you're doing, you'll just never do anything. Um, so the whole time I've ever been making things, I've been getting ahead of myself all the time, but whatever. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't sit around and wait for permission, you know. Mostly I wait to get paid. <laughs> I, I kind of was like, okay, I, I was satisfied with this as a short story, but... We'll just try making a comic, because why not? You know, they've they've given me a slot. So yeah. yeah. Thank you. What else? I have a question a couple questions about collaboration. Um, do you make the choices? Do people pick you? Um, and is there any artist, writer, creative person out there that you haven't worked with that you've worked with? Oh golly. Um, it's been a mixture of people approaching me and me approaching other people. Um, like in this case, I just got all my friends to pose for the various people because they the people corresponded somehow in my brain. But like the ballet, um, I was approached by a man named David Drew, who was a dancer and. Um, choreographer himself for the Royal Ballet in London. And he had seen one of my other books, The Three Ancestral Sisters, and he wanted to make a ballet. And we never got that to happen. But in the process, he introduced me to Wayne McGregor, who said, yeah, let's do a new thing. And we ended up with this thing called Raven Girl. But um, sometimes, yeah, I mean, there's loads of people I'd love to work with. Um, sometimes they're people I know and sometimes not. But I think 
my my biggest gambit in that direction was um, I don't know if you're into Doctor Who at all. A little bit. So you know who Stephen Moffat is? Yes. Okay. So Stephen Moffat was for years a writer and showrunner for Doctor Who, and he wrote an episode of Doctor Who called "The Girl in the Fireplace." And I had never, I had never watched new Doctor Who. I'd seen old Doctor <laughs> Who. And somebody said to me, "Oh, you know, there's this interview with Russell T. Davies, and he's saying that this episode of Doctor Who is based on the Time Traveler's Wife." And I'm like, "Okay." So I sat down and watched it, and I'm like, oh, I'm in love with this. This is great. <laughs> you know, so then I got really into it, and I especially love Stephen Moffat's episodes. He's just really brilliant. And when he started to be showrunner, I was all over it and so super into it. And so when I was writing my second novel, there's a situation where two of the characters are watching TV. And I just needed them to be watching TV. It absolutely didn't matter what was on TV. So the thing that's on TV is the girl in the fireplace. <laughs> and so they're sitting there watching it and commenting on it and, you know, stuff's going on. It's a ghost story, so the ghost gets into the TV and is doing things. So anyway, evidently Stephen Moffat saw this. And so some time went by, and then he was like, hey, maybe you want to write for Doctor Who? And I'm like, ooh, probably not, but I'll come have coffee with you. And he was just wonderful. And I didn't end up writing for Doctor Who because basically I'm not that fast. Um, you really have to be just super on it to write for TV. So nothing came of it. And then all of a sudden I got this email from Stephen Moffat saying, oh, hey, you know, actually we're going to do a TV series based on Time Traveler's Wife. And I'm like, oh, you are, are you? Because, of course, I didn't own the rights. Because, you know, they made that movie that I don't talk about. But, but Warner, which owns the rights, was like, yeah, Stephen Moffat, hey, baby. And so that's what he's doing. Um, and it's going to be, I think, it's going to be for HBO. And I think they're going to do, like, I don't know, 24 episodes or something. So they will Holy have time smokes. to explore every nook and cranny. Holy smokes. Yeah, and he's going to write it himself. So I'm just like, yes. So I would have said, I want to collaborate with Stephen Moffat, but it has come to pass, or will, or is. <laughs> you are. But he would have been, like, at the top of my list. So I was just feeling incredibly smug. Um, anyway. Did he call to sort of get your blessing or just don't he was, he was emailing to get my blessing yeah he was like this is kind of happening what do you think and I'm like oh yes baby so, yeah. because it's him because go it's for him. it yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, that's so, great yeah uh, the contract that I signed back in 2002 specifies the pittance that I will get but yeah. I'm hoping that it will sell books mm -hmm. you know yeah. so you know it'll be a big old advert for books and the sequel, and the sequel the is coming out so it's like it's all good I you know I mean they, they could pay me and you know use chewing gum and I would be cool with this project mm -hmm. don't mm -hmm. tell them that <laughs> <laughs> don't worry no one listens to this podcast so. <laughs> it's all good <laughs> what else what else we got one more maybe one more question Anybody? No, everyone's no, totally good? satiated. Good. No one has any questions about anything. Okay. Oh. Yes? Book covers? Are you doing your future book covers yourself? Um, I have had really funny interactions with 
publishers of novels about me doing art. There are special editions of Time Traveler's Wife and Symmetry that I did covers for, but they're like, you know, special. They're not like, you know, real. So they're floating around on the internet. You could get them for not much money if you want. But uh, when it comes to doing the real covers, they prefer to entrust this to, you know, their, their officially sanctioned. And, and I got to admit, you know, people who do covers all day long for Scribner and Random House and whatever do better covers than I do, at least for the purpose of selling books. Because I get too weird. I go off on weird tangents. And um, like Suzanne Dean is the designer who did the kind of iconic Time Traveler's Wife cover. And she commissioned a photographer and she, she had the whole thing done from scratch and didn't use clip art or any of that. And, um, you know, just, I mean, she's amazing, brilliant. And I've worked with other really, really good designers. So I'm happy. I'm happy. I like to have a little input. Um, if they pat me on the head and say, ah, I'm like, all right, you know, it's okay. Um, I've had some really weird covers. If you go to my website, I put all the foreign covers on part of my website. Some of them are hilarious. <laughs> there's a Czechoslovak, or not Czechoslovak, I say that, I'm such in a habit, but there's a Czech cover, Czech Republic cover of Time Traveler's Wife where it's a painting of a woman looking very 1950s. She's got this A-line skirt and the hairdo and everything. And she has a pacifier in her mouth. I have no idea what this means. It's, it's one of those weird check things, but. <laughs> what? Yeah, so who knows? It, it, it did okay in, you know, there, because, yeah. In Poland, it looks like a crime novel. I have no idea why. Yeah. I mean, book, book covers, man, they're fascinating. You go and stand in your basic everyday bookstore and you start to realize that you're surrounded by all these really interesting ideas about what will sell, what this book means, why does everybody like headless women, suddenly why are all the covers floral with type, mm. you know, it's, there's, yeah, this is cool. Okay, well, as a reminder, uh, if anyone wants to purchase one of the books out in the reception area, please come see me and I'll try to handle it for you and Audrey will sign it for you. So uh, with that, thank you, Audrey, for coming. We Thanks, really appreciate Chris. it. Yeah. This has been Q&A, recorded in the Kadich Gallery at St. Ambrose University in Davenport, Iowa. The Kadich and Morrissey Galleries are located in the Galvin Fine Arts and Communications Center at 2101 North Gaines Street between Locust and Lombard. All content of this podcast is the exclusive property of St. Ambrose University, copyright 2017, and may not be utilized without expressed written permission.